a listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on, why it's happening and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Amy Goggins. I'm a journalist and news editor here at Listener. And Keith, today we're looking at global trends and you reporters out. Tell us, what is the future looking like? (laughs) Well, the original document is from the U.S. National Intelligence Centre. So that is um, obviously a consortium of major intelligence agencies in the United States. And every four years, the National Intelligence Centre produces its Global Trends Report. So we're now up to the seventh edition, published only um, a few months ago. And um, to try to make sense of it, Sammy Consulting has done a summary of the report and made some comments at the end. So Sammy was the St. Andrews Management Institute. It's now a standalone company. It's moved south into England from St. Andrews in Scotland and is now in Berkshire, west of London. And they produce excellent material. And this is a report which they've done, uh, what they call their work a working paper, talking about global trends, 2040, a more contested world. What they're doing uh, is looking at this US national intelligence report. What I find intriguing is that we have these reports being published by, if you like, the deep state in the United States. In other words, it's not done by the politicians. Politicians have the concentration span of a flea, and so they only look long-term, whereas the value of this national intelligence report is that it's looking at long-term issues. It's looking 20 years ahead. And so um, the intention of the intelligence report is to help policymakers and citizens see what may lie beyond the horizon and prepare for an array of possible futures. So they're not predictions. Um, they're basically three ways of, of moving into the future. One is prediction. And most predictions are a waste of time. Uh, you know, for example, who's going to win the Melbourne Cup? So those predictions are a waste of time. One of them has really held up. It was made by Gordon Moore half a century ago, and Gordon Moore predicted that the power of computers will double every 18 months or two years and would halve in price every 18 months or two years. So computers will become more powerful and will become cheaper. And that prediction has held up. So we're living increasingly into a world which is foreshadowed, overshadowed by artificial intelligence and the role of computers, etc. So most predictions are a waste of time, but some really do work out. And Moore's Law is my favorite example of a successful prediction. A second way of thinking about the future is a preferred future. In other words, that you have a vision of what you want in the future and then you build a bridge back from the future to the present. And this is basically the world in which the politicians exist because they're forever trying to spin out a story of a vision of the future which they hope they're going to be able to create, one in which, for example, we've eradicated climate change or the COVID pandemic, etc. 
And so everything they say is shaped uh, or spun by the need to fit into that vision. There's no problem with people having visions. Um, that's how we move ahead. You know, obviously someone like um, Steve Jobs had a vision for what should be done about personal computers, and that that's worked out to be um, a good vision. It's, well, it's certainly changed the world for good or ill. Now, the third way of thinking about the future is possible, not what is being currently predicted, not what you necessarily like to see happen, but what could happen. And that's what this report is about. So the US National Intelligence Center is not making predictions. It's not telling us what the world is going to be like. It's produced a series of scenarios, as we call them in the business. My, my third PhD is on scenario planning. And so what they're doing is looking at, at the drivers of change, and then they've produced um, five scenarios. So just perhaps we look at some of the drivers of change that they've identified. One is demographics and the change that's coming about in the global population. So some parts of the global population are in decline, if not shrinking. Uh, so Japan will be empty <laughs> in about 200 years' time, as will Russia. Um, China may grow old before it grows rich. So you've got some countries that are not growing. Meanwhile, in Africa, there is a huge population explosion. So by the end of this century, there'll be more people living in Africa than in India and China combined. So you, you've got obviously a demographic change that is underway. And of course, it is these young people in Africa or parts of Asia uh, who are so important for us because we oldies are going to retire from the workforce and we're going to have to recruit people from overseas. So one structural force um, which is shaping the future is the purely demographics. The second one, of course, would be environment and climate change. Um, the Club of Rome, my organisation, has talked about the way that the 21st century will be known as the century of the environment. So the 20th century, according to the Club of Rome, is the century of the economy because it was in the 20th century that we worked out how you get economic growth. And that, of course, is what we've seen all around us. However, in the 21st century, we're going to have to find a way of coping with all that economic growth, hence the discussion over climate change and exhaustion of non-renewable resources, etc. A third factor would be the economic trends, such as the debt burdens that are on countries. You know, we've had to print a huge amount of money to get us out of this COVID crisis. So we, we clearly we've got immense economic issues that need to be dealt with. And number four, of course, is technology. I've already foreshadowed the importance of Gordon Moore and Moore's law and the power of computers. And so we see technology continuing to be used, spread, and then discarded at ever-increasing speeds around the world. So technology is a major factor that you need to always keep in mind. So they are the drivers of change. And then what they've done is to look at how these changes are taking place. And they've then produced uh, five scenarios to say, these are not predictions. This is not how the world is going to be, but it's how the world could be. Therefore, you need to have plans in place to cope with this particular set of scenarios.
You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. My name is Amy Goggins, and before we left, we were talking all about global trends. Dr. Keith, I thought you were going to get out your crystal ball <laughs> and tell us all about what's happening in the future. And look, there are. There are five key scenarios of the world in 2040. What are the five trends? Yep. So number one, um, they call the renaissance of democracies. In other words, that the West and its Asian allies um, bring about this fourth industrial revolution. Now, the, the this fourth industrial revolution is the blending of human bodies with computers so that uh, at the moment we have unintelligent parts in our body, uh, like, for example, knees. If you're an older person, you've had your knees replaced. But now we're looking at how we will augment your brain by implanting stuff into your brain. This is the fourth industrial revolution. It'll also involve biotechnology. And this is an optimistic scenario in the sense that you'll see increased international collaboration. The global institutions like the United Nations uh, will become stronger. Uh, There'll be progress made on climate change, migration, cybersecurity, and a lot of the environmental issues. So That's the optimistic scenario. Remember, it's not the job of scenario planners to provide you with positive or negative ones. Their job is simply to provide you with a range of views. So what they're looking at here is the way in which the United States uh, continues to thrive. Remember, it's quite fashionable at the moment for people to talk about the decline of the United States. But in this scenario, the US is bouncing forward. Other countries, Western Europe, Great Britain, Australia, New Zealand, are all um, very much caught up and in making economic progress. On the other hand, China has increased digital repression, limiting any free expression and inhibiting innovation. So in, in effect, it reduces its own technological advantages by not allowing innovation to take place. It's already got a problem with its aging population, got issues of debt, and inefficient state-directed economic activities rather than relying on the market. So that's one scenario. That's the way in which the Western world can get ahead and uh, return to a period of, uh, of dominance. So very different from what people are thinking about at the moment when they talk about the decline of the United States. A second scenario is called a world adrift, in which the club of rich Western countries uh, struggle to recover from the current pandemic and they have an extended recession. Remember, we are keeping a lot of country, a lot of companies ticking over, even though they're called zombie companies because government grants, etc., are injecting money into the economy. Once you stop injecting that money because you're so worried about the high level of indebtedness, then you will end up with problems. And so this second scenario talks about the club of rich Western countries has um, a a collection of problems, environmental, health, economic crises. We're obviously running out of young people with all their sort of new ideas, etc. And also linked to that is that China also has got climate change issues but it is able to continue to take over. It still remains in the game. But it's basically we're looking at a world with no real one country dominating it, and China and Russia 
still involved because of their centralised government control. So the developing countries like Africa, that whole continent, large, unemployed, youthful populations feel compelled to appease the Chinese demands in the hope of securing much-needed investment and aid. And so you'll end up then with Africa being conquered increasingly through Chinese investments. And, of course, that will increase the risk of migration, mainly to Europe and the United States, which then further plays into the domestic polarisation of those populations. Uh, Large global problems, particularly climate change and health challenges, remain unaddressed. And so you're going to end up with all sorts of problems. So the second uh, scenario is the world adrift. The third one sees um, the US and China scenarios in what they call more of a middle way. So the stimulus packages enable the club of rich Western countries to eventually recover from the pandemic. They've got fresh life. They're able to uh, keep going. So they're doing all right. And then you've got China, which is also still involved in the game. And, of course, everybody is after Africa with its uh, immense amount of resources and cheap labour. So that is a a battle between uh, the United States and China. Carbon emissions have been reduced substantially, but not fast enough to avoid many extreme events. Uh, And richer countries have been able to adapt new technologies, but much of the world is suffering. So that is the third scenario, very much based on this idea of the competition between the United States and China and their respective allies. Obviously, Australia would be supporting the United States in this scenario. Uh, The fourth scenario talks about the world being broken up into different silos. Uh, So you'd have, obviously, the United States, you'd have China, you'd have the European Union, which manages to hold together. Remember, we've now got scenarios about talking about Hungary pulling out or Poland pulling out, perhaps even France pulling out. But under this scenario, you've got the European Union standing firm, a major economic grouping. And then you've got Russia. Russia is not a major economic player. It's obviously important because it's nuclear weapons, uh, but it's, it's got an economy the size of Canada. Uh, but nonetheless, it, it uh, gets attention in this, in terms of there being four major groupings in the world, the United States and its allies like Australia, China, the European Union, and Russia. And so those four will continue to compete with each other so you've got a disruption in supply chains, et cetera. You've got all sorts of problems as these four separate groupings compete with one another. So that's the fourth scenario. And then the fifth scenario, which I find the most intriguing, is called tragedy and mobilisation. So the tragedy comes from the failure to deal with issues like climate change. We looked at that, remember, last week and the problems of the Glasgow Conference. So you have climate change, you have a global food catastrophe. And so in a sense, and of course you've got running out of of fish, it's interesting you could cut the world's fishing fleet by 50% and you still end up catching the same number of fish. You've got too many fishers chasing too few fish. So you've got all sorts of problems that arise, but the good news is the mobilisation of this younger generation. We're back to Greta Thunberg and her colleagues. 
So you've got a younger generation who got rid of the old dinosaurs like me, and they're reinvigorating the global institutions and uh, reinvigorating national governments, and they're far more concerned about working across national boundaries. They're not interested in continuing the old political squabbles because they can see that if they don't work together, they will perish separately. And so with this mobilisation, this younger generation of activists who gradually take over in more and more countries, they're the ones who provide this very optimistic and challenging scenario, and they they call that tragedy and mobilisation. And it's interesting that if you look at what's going on in life generally, and I speak as an educationalist, but this is heresy, we assume that people will change their way of thinking and then change their behaviour. So, for example, we have education campaigns against smoking, and yet you go to the car park of any big hospital and you'll find medical staff smoking in the car park. So education doesn't necessarily change behaviour. So instead of using thinking to change your way of living, perhaps your way of living will change your way of thinking. And so a new generation of activists coming through, the Greta Thunbergs of this world, who can see that the world is going to rack and ruin, they then decide that they will change their way of living, which will then bring on this change of thinking. In other words, more cooperation across national lines and getting countries to work together to solve common problems. And so that's really the basis of this tragedy and mobilisation uh, scenario, that in fact you, you do get the environmental action simply because the environment collapses. And people realise, look, we've got to do something about it. The old ways from the old people, they don't work anymore. And so we need to come up with new ideas about what could be done. So that's the document produced by um, the um, St. Andrews Management Institute, or now just called SAMI. And as the authors of the summary of the report says, overall, the report leans towards a pessimistic view of the future possibly because there's, they, the US intelligence agency, see their role as flying warning flags. So here you've got the deep state warning the American uh, political community and American citizens that, look, we've, we've got major problems ahead of us. Let's not do, be too fixated about watching cat videos on YouTube, etc. cetera. Um, and the final comment of the main report from the Americans, is also endorsed by Sammy Consulting and is a final comment that I would also endorse as well. And this is what the American report says. We must be ever vigilant, asking better questions, frequently challenging our assumptions, checking our biases and looking for weak signals of change. We need to expect the unexpected and apply the lessons of this pandemic to our craft in the future. Fascinating stuff, Dr. Keith. Let's hope we can rely on the youth to get rid of any of that pessimistic stuff and we've got an optimistic future ahead. Indeed. Thank you. That was this week's episode of Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda. Make sure you tune in next week where we'll break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on. Listener.